Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Ernest Hardy, sitting in for Morgan Rose today. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to talk about a heat rock. If Morgan was here, she would say flammables. I always like that. Today, we return once again to the purple one, Prince, and his 1986 album, Parade. Les enfants qui mentent ne vont pas au paradis. When I Perhaps this comes as no surprise, but no artist has appeared on Heat Rocks as often as Prince. Today marks number four, and he becomes our first-time quadruple crown winner on the show. Obviously, it speaks to his legacy as one of the greatest musical talents in American history, but it's also because he seemed to use every new album as an experiment to tinker with his sound and style, and perhaps no album represents that mercurial spirit more than Parade. Ostensibly a soundtrack for Under the Cherry Moon, Prince's cinematic follow-up to Purple Rain, Parade came out a full three months before his movie did, which is just as well since the film was universally panned. In contrast, Parade became one of Prince's most critically and commercially successful albums, and it helped that its lead single, Kiss, was a mega smash. But more than just one hit tune, Parade found Prince and the revolution at their eclectic best with an effort that jumped from jazz to soul to a touch of French pop to, of course, funk. It's been described as an album that doesn't fit into the rest of Prince's catalog, which feels like the most Prince thing that you could say about it. Parade was the album pick of our guest today, Gabrielle Seville. Miss Seville is a poet, a scholar, and a historian, all of which fuse in her performance art. Born and raised in Detroit, she's traveled the world amassing information and asking questions about the politics of identity and how identity, that of race, gender, sex, sexuality, class, is made, fractured, and remade against the canvas of the larger world. Currently a professor at CalArts in the Critical Studies Department, which is where I first met her and began exchanging playlists of old-school Detroit house and techno, mm. what strikes me about her work is that the intellectual rigor is matched by boundless empathy. Her first book, Swallow the Fish, published in 2017, is described by Ms. Seville as, quote, My memoir in performance art, a hybrid critical creative text, the book tells my coming-of-age story as an artist with meditations, images, anecdotes, and performance text, end of quote. Her second book, Experiments with Joy, published earlier this year, celebrates black feminist collaborations and solos in essays, letters, performance texts, scores, images, and more. I want to read a passage from the book that I think really captures Gabrielle, her goals as an artist, and how she moves through the world. The passage is taken from a series of letters she exchanges with poet and playwright Zeta Elliott. In one letter, Gabrielle responds to Miss Elliott by writing, quote, In performance art, it's not about how you look. It's about what you do. It's not even about acting so much as it is about being, and specifically, being in your body. Mm. What does that mean, to be in your body? Especially if you've been taught that your body is the enemy, its desire a main threat to you having a future. What does it mean to feel and show your own body and breath? to activate your presence, to turn audiences from spectators to witnesses? What actions could you make? What power could you claim and hold from that space? Gabrielle, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. Gabrielle, when we first asked you to be on Heat Rocks and give us your selections, you were torn between Prince's 1978 debut for you Mm. and Parade. Yes. Why did you finally settle on Parade? What makes that a Heat Rock to you? I mean... So you had this incredible mega success in 1984 of Purple Rain. Then you have Around the World in a Day, which, I mean, for me, as a deep, long-time, hardcore, growing up with Prince, Prince fan, I love that record. I mean, I used to roller skate at the Y to America. I loved it. Yeah. But it was not a success for him. Surprisingly, What could have been a success (laughs) after Purple Rain? I mean, that was such a monster. (laughs) And then he came back with this. And... 
there's something about the way that he reclaimed his spirit, changed his look, changed his sound, and played with both a kind of minimalism in songs like Kiss and I Wonder You, but then this Mm. lushness of all these orchestrations that Claire Fisher did for him, along with, you know, all of a sudden you've got the arrival of these horns. You've got Eric Leeds, you've got Atlanta Bliss. So there's something about that relationship between the minimal and the funky and then that richness and that opulence. So that really appealed to me. And the cinematic quality is also something that's very interesting to me as a performance artist, the way that he built worlds within the record and that the world within the record, which is ostensibly supposed to be related to the world of that movie, is actually, I think, somewhat distinct. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very different. And there's something about cosmopolitanism and there's something very romantic about this record. So there all of those things. You know, when I start to think, like, what album... I mean, I could talk about almost any Prince album for an hour, but <laughs> what what album really do I think... Can I say some things about, um, for me especially as, like, a black girl wanting to be an artist, not having a lot of models, and then seeing certain kinds of work come into the world that helped me think about things differently, I think Parade did that even more for me than, than the Prince record. Mm. You know what's interesting to me about Parade, what you were saying about... That, you know, the, its predecessor not having been that successful, um, and especially in comparison to Purple Rain. One of the things that's interesting to me about Parade is it almost feels like Prince is recalibrating in a lot of ways. On one hand, he's sort of cleansing the palate and saying, if you couldn't get into the other one, you're not going to, you know, here's some real challenges. Yet at the same time, he's giving you something like Kiss, which is such like a, a, a pop classic. So he's doing both. He's both issuing you challenges and saying, okay, I'll give you what you want to the extent that I can give you what you want because Prince never just gave you what you wanted, right? <laughs> never. <laughs> even, even when he's like, here's pop, there's a challenge. Yeah. He gave you right? what you didn't know you wanted. Exactly, exactly. So one of the things about Parade is I think he's doing both simultaneously. He's, even, he's going even further in terms of experimenting um, with what the audience can take and what he and his band can produce. And he's saying, I'm also going to stretch the boundaries of what you think of as pop. Absolutely. I do want to say one thing about Under the Cherry Moon for those who haven't seen it, which is the film that ostensibly Parade is the soundtrack to. Um, I love Under the Cherry Moon. I mean, most of Prince's movies are not good. I mean, <laughs> the only movie that I would say, I mean, the best movie is Sign of the Times. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because Sign of the Times is the is the double album that comes right after Parade. And mm-hmm. that is a masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible, right? But. I love Purple Rain, but as a film, come on, friends. I mean, they throw Apollonia in the trash. I mean, come on. I mean, but I I mean, I could quote you that, but but come on. And then Graffiti Bridge. That's another record that I love very much. But as a film, come on. This movie, however, it is unsuccessful in some ways as a film. But there are some things about it that are interesting to me. And that one, he was like, this needs to be in black and white. Two, I need to die. And three, it needs to be in the south of France. And that last piece, you know, when they were like, why can't we just film this in Florida? Why does this need to be in the south of France? When he's like, because I want the community to see the south of France. Mm -hmm. So there's something about Prince with exposure. There's something about the way that he's bringing in different kinds of musical genres and styles and the experimentation of this album that I felt like. I felt like he was talking to me. He was like, black girl, I'm going to expose you to some things. I'm going to expose you to some orchestration. I'm going to expose you to some music that, like I know in Matt Thorne's um, book on Prince, he talks about a song like Venus de Milo as, you know, pretty but incidental music. For someone like me, that song was like revolutionary. (laughs) When did I hear a black man bring in this kind of delicate, beautiful music Mm -hmm. in the context of, you know, ostensibly a pop album? Right. So there's something around the cosmopolitanism of it, but also the nostalgia um, that to me was really important in, in, in exposing me to different kinds of musical sounds and also saying that as a black person, I could have, 
I could have access to anything. Right, right, right. So can we cycle back a little bit in terms of when you were growing up, was this an album that you picked up right away when it first came out? And likewise with the movie, did you rush out to see it? And I'm going to add a third question to that is that how did the soundtrack prepare you for the movie? Because it's very unusual to release a soundtrack before the movie comes out, let alone three months before the movie comes right. out. Right. Well, okay. So first I have to really give props to my older sister. Shout out to older siblings. Older siblings <laughs> like set you up for musical love. And my older sister had excellent musical taste, except mm. for some of that 1970s horse with no name America <laughs> stuff that she was listening to, which I don't care about. But, but she really, I mean, but she had Rick James. She had Prince. She had... Um, the double dutch bus she, she you know it was she was she had it and so f- probably even as early as 1999 or controversy i mean and my god sister i got to name her and my god brother they had all these records so whenever there was a prince album that was coming it was it was in, it, i heard it yeah one of those people one of those older people got it and we all listened to it now i immediately um listened to this record and it was so like melancholy and emotional and romantic and really different than what I remember around the world in the day being. Mm. And me liking it, but being a little afraid of songs like um, Sometimes It Snows in April because it was like, what does it mean to be so sad? What does it mean to say that you're sad and to be emotionally vulnerable in that way? You know, as a a prepubescent girl, you're attracted to that. You want to be able to do that, but that's also really terrifying. Um, So there's that experience that I had kind of coming to know and love those songs. But then I remember going with Lainey Walker as soon as we could to the Americana Theater in Southfield, Michigan, (laughs) right outside Detroit. Because as Ernest knows, there aren't that many movie theaters (laughs) in the city of Detroit. So you got to go to where white people are to go to the movies. Mm. And I remember that the film Under the Cherry Moon confused me. So I was like, first of all... (laughs) why is this like what happened to the color because remember it starts in color (laughs) and then two minutes and i was just like is something wrong with the projection (laughs) i really didn't have any idea of what i was about to see so that was one thing and then the idea that he would die i had no i that i didn't understand that at all and i remember saying to laney like is the movie over i just couldn't understand (laughs) what was going on in this film but then I remember he had these like finger waves. He had like that Josephine Baker curls on his face and these waves. And, you know, he was both a gigolo, but he was also kind of like louche. And later I would come to understand it's almost like the Nicholas Brothers. He's Mm. just like this 1920. That's what I'm saying, people. You got to see this movie because what he's doing in that movie is writing himself into a kind of cinematic history where he didn't get to see himself. I feel like he made a movie that he wanted to have been able to see as a child himself. And that kind of gesture, I know in my own performance practice or in my first book, Swallow the Fish, there's a whole sequence that I do called Fat Black Performance Art, where I just take all these classic performance art actions, you know, Carol Lee Schneemann with the interior scroll or or Karen Fenley and smearing the chocolate. And all of a sudden, I just make it be like a fat black woman who's doing it. That kind of insertion into a particular history, that is really what Prince is doing in mm-hmm. Under the Cherry yeah. Moon. Yeah. And I don't know if I understood it at the time, but I was I just was excited by it because right. it was something so radically different than anything else I had ever seen. Right. As someone who had not seen the film but knew that this was a soundtrack for it, it made a lot more sense listening to Parade and trying to figure out how do you go from this style to this style because it doesn't feel like there's an, an intuitive through line to connecting all of the diversity of sounds and styles that are on here until you remember, well, if this is supposed to be tied to a movie, then it makes more sense because some of the songs, at least for, to my ears, sounded like this is a song I would expect to hear in a movie as opposed to a song I would expect to hear on the radio, which is how I experienced Prince of the mm-hmm. 1980s, was strictly through his commercial output. And so I think knowing that, even without having seen the movie, the album made more sense to me, if that makes any sense. 
like Gabrielle, I'm from Detroit, and Detroit was always just like a, like huge for Prince. I mean, Prince was the ocean in which we swam. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that you know? analogy. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, Prince was the thread pulling you through. And so even though on one hand it is sort of scattered, it's not cohesive in an obvious way, when you've sort of been fed Prince for so long, you just sort of go with it, I think, much more easily than you know, maybe fans who came on board with Purple Rain or, right. or fans who only knew him from the, the radio s- stuff. I think if you sort of, you know, had just been sort of infused with Prince, um, sort of swimming through that album was maybe a bit easier mm. and not, maybe not quite so chaotic or, or scattered. You mentioned your sister and her influence on your musical taste. And one of the questions I was I had for you was if you could talk a little bit about Detroit's relationship to Prince and how that relationship shaped your relationship to Prince. Because you know what you're saying about mm. you know your older sibling being into Prince and then cousins and neighbors. I mean, it's really difficult for I think people who weren't who didn't grow up in Detroit to realize just how huge Prince was. And so for me, when I'm hearing you say, you know, my sister had Prince and she had Rick James and she had the Double Touch Bus, I, I can't think of any place where kids, you know, listening to the radio were primed with such extraordinary a diversity of sound, a diversity Absolutely. of genre, you know. Um, I mean, that's why techno came from Detroit, <laughs> right? And so it makes sense to me that you, as a young girl, were already just like deeply immersed and all this music, and that Prince would be one of the sort of one of the anchors that you grabbed hold of. That is so well said and so true because I think that I mean, if you listen to like WJLB or you listen to the Electrifying Mojo, mm-hmm. or you listen to these incredible DJs who were eclectic and were playing the B fifty twos and were playing Kraftwerk. And I mean, I remember listening to uh, Pop Pocket Calculator on Black Radio. Yes, I mean, just yes. what mm. it all was mm. was and and I remember my godbrother loved Elvis Costello. I mean, it just was real. <laughs> it was it was not clear channel communication, and it was also not a such a narrow definition of blackness right, in terms right. of musical sound is what I f- I fear people are having now. I mean, I think. There are some artists today that are trying to push against that. But I just feel so thankful that I grew up in a moment before the Internet when Prince (laughs) ruled things and also that I grew up in Detroit. Because, I mean, one big thing I guess I should say for those who don't know me is that I am a big Midwestern booster in some ways. I mean, born and raised in Detroit and then spent 13 years working in Minneapolis, which, you know, it's, it's amazing. That place it explains so much of why Prince is who he is mm-hmm. that he grew up there in mm-hmm. some ways. But, but anyway, I think that in, when I grew up, we thought of Detroit as Prince's like favorite city. Absolutely. He, that's where he would come to do his birthday concerts right. and mm-hmm. shows. That's where he would come and give exclusive interviews with DJs. That's where he like loved the crowds. That's where he would do surprises. I mean, he, he would come to Detroit. It felt like even more than he would play at home. Oh, absolutely. And there was something about the way that, even like sort of like macho dudes who maybe wouldn't normally be into some guy in a trench coat and a jock strap and high heels, <laughs> like they just went there for him. Like whatever he wanted to do, they were like, let me just go off and see this, like right, whatever right. this movie, let me just see what Prince is doing. And the Prince is a fool. He crazy, but we love him. You know, whatever. It was mm-hmm. almost like he was a member of some kind of family. And I loved growing up seeing someone who was so idiosyncratic or Mm -hmm. so strange also be deeply black and deeply weird. Right, right. Well, you mentioned radio DJs and especially the great Electrifying Mojo. And I remember he did this remix of his own of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. That was the funkiest. I mean, I've never heard anything like it. And mm. I would kill to, to, to have it today. But in addition to radio, we had the, the local dance show, The Scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, set the clock, but this time we rock, but we rock, rock, rock all around the clock. We don't stop, we don't stop. We rock, rock, rock all around the clock. They say, don't stop the body rock, we just dance them on. Dancers come from all around the crown in this year, geek down. The latest steps and the latest style. Pretty faces and pretty smiles. We're looking good, everybody's clean. So set the clock aside for the scene. And so what you were just describing, we, we also had visual accompaniment. We had guys who lived right next door to you, went, went to high school with you, who would be on the scene. And these were, quote unquote, tough guys. But when they put themselves together for the scene, they were mimicking, they were taking cues from princess aesthetics. Mm-hmm. right? And so we saw all kinds of blurring and all kinds of boundary crossing. And you know, but to your point, I think there are a lot of black artists now pushing against this really narrow definition of what black music is. But I feel like having been raised in Detroit, it feels like they're trying to get back to someplace where we already were. That's right. You know? I mean, I think, I mean, I want to also shout out Channel 62. Yes. Because that was a black television station and that's where the scene took place. And so it was also a different kind of media. I mean, and even to bring it back to the album of Parade, one thing, another thing that's important around this record I mean, so this is what you were talking about, Ernest, in terms of some of these tough dudes, like with blurred aesthetic. 1986 was a kind of a new romantic time in, in black culture and maybe even in, in popular music overall. I mean, it wasn't Spandau Ballet mm-hmm, or some of these mm-hmm. English English groups were yeah. coming out of that yeah, time. Yeah, and there was a whole movement, the new romantics. I mean, and there's something about that kind of softness or that ruffle or with a little bit of kind of fayness that I just remember, even in my neighborhood, that there were guys that were rocking that really unapologetically. And so that's connected to that dandy idea. But it's also connected to something else, like I can be a lover for you, or I can yeah. be, you know, there was something really special around that. And there was also, that was connected or coded with Frenchness, mm-hmm. which is another thing that made this album On kind Brady, of exciting for me. Yeah. You know, there was all of these, this is where all of a sudden there were Latanias and Moniques, and there was all this Frenchness <laughs> that was coming into like black culture really hard and in a very um, kind of important way for me because my father is from Haiti. And so I grew up um, hearing French, hearing Creole. Mm. And so to have someone like Prince all of a sudden have a song Mm. where it's like, vous êtes très belle and have French be on this album. I mean, that's another reason why I felt really connected. And there was this cosmopolitan idea and there was this expatriate idea and it was romantic but it was also kind of tragic and melancholy because it was Prince. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Gabrielle Seville about Prince's Parade after a brief word from a few of our Max Fun podcasts. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Tusk Henderson, and I am an outdoorsman. Are you looking for a new comedy podcast? This month's episode of Beef and Dairy Network Podcast has as its guest the wonderful Nick Offerman, playing the part of Tusk Henderson, adventurer and outdoorsman. Think about fitting yourself a month's worth of provisions and a half-ton cow into a kayak. So if you've never listened to the show before, this might be a good place to start. I string a bowstring between her horn tips and I can fire a spear off the top of her head and uh, took in some very delicious cod. So if you're after a new comedy podcast, why not try the Beef and Dairy Network for maximum fun? Download it now. You flip a cow upside down, they make an excellent toboggan. Macho man to the top rope. The flying elbow, the cover. We've got a new champion. We're here with Macho Man Randy Savage after his big win to become the new world champion. What are you going to do now, Match? I'm going to go listen to the newest episode of the Tights and Fights podcast. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about this podcast. It's the podcast of power. Too sweet to be sour. Funky like a monkey. Woke discussions, man. And jokes about wrestlers' fashion choices. Myself excluded. Yeah. I can't wait to listen. Neither can I. You can find it Thursdays on Maximum Fun. Oh, yeah. Dig it. 
We are back on Heat Rocks talking about Prince's 1986 album Parade with Gabriel Seville. So I'm going to um, take the thread that we've been holding and, and pull it in a slightly different direction. In the introduction to your book, Experiments in Joy, and in your work period, you really make it clear that your art is in conversation with and hugely inspired by the scholarship, art, and activism of countless black women across discipline and genre. June Jordan, Haradina Pendel, Audre Lorde, Catherine Dunham, Octavia Butler, and so many others. In that introduction, you also cite Prince, who, along with Willie Colon, is the only male (laughs) (laughs) mentioned in the introduction. Um, So I have two questions. The first is, and this sort of gets at something we've been talking about, um, there's something about Prince's work that is feminine as we think of feminine, right? But it also exists simultaneously way beyond the binary of male, female, masculine, feminine. So I'm wondering what it was that had you include him so close to that roll call Mm. of black women, right? And I'm also wondering if you can speak to the role of black women in Prince's purple world. Ooh, wow. (laughs) Okay, so um, yes, for those who have not yet read Experiments in Joy, which I hope that you will, um, in the opening there is a big roll call and especially of sort of black, feminist ancestors who have passed on and really calling their names and bringing the, their life force into this really challenging moment that we're in. And, and there's this idea that black feminist joy doesn't deny oppression. It defies it and it doubles down on the possibility of imagining something else mm. and imagining against the status quo. And somehow bringing Prince right there. <laughs> I mean, who, I mean, who else, you know, so many people. I don't want to make Prince. I mean, Prince is wonderful, and I love him so deeply. But I also don't want to feed so much into this exceptional idea. Even though in my heart, I'm like, Prince <laughs> is gone, and what are we going to do? But, but there is a sense of like a a really recognizable, iconic figure of someone imagining against the status quo. Um, and also for me, I'm such a strongly identified Black feminist, and and really, really lifting up kind of Black women, Black femmes. I mean, just black feminine energy, but also really having space for, for understanding that in a really broad way mm-hmm. and having Prince also be in that and other people, some who are not black, some who are not, you know, like female identified, but just sort of vibing with a certain kind of life force. So not wanting to be rigid either. And in the, in the book, it's sort of like, okay, well, now that we have this possibility and we're feeling like we want to try to experiment with joy, what are some things we can do? Well, one thing we can do is dance to Prince. Mm. Because for me, dancing to Prince brings me joy. So that's one reason. Now, women in the in the purple world of Prince, that's complicated. <laughs> to say yeah. the least. To say the least. I mean, I did read a long time ago an article in The New Yorker that was talking about what is it with Prince and all these like tawny colored, you know, <laughs> like tall, like women, like that, that, that later in the later years, they seemed a little in exchange, like interchangeable. Um, and I... I mean, it's interesting because on the one hand, I remember when Prince had Marva Collins in the Most Beautiful Girl in the World mm-hmm. video. So those who don't know who she is, and she's this dark-skinned black woman who created, you know, academies for kids. And so, like, there's a way in which, on the one hand, he wanted to try to represent a certain kind of love for for black women. But then he always, in his, in his actual uh, romantic choices and in who were his protégés, it was either very young, very light, very thin, often multiracial um, women. Or, I mean, later he was trying to support people like Rosie Gaines or, or even maybe, maybe Staples. Staples. Right, right. So, I mean, I think he had a, it seemed to me like he had a complicated relationship. On the one hand, he really, it seemed musically recognized the contributions of women, of black women and wanted to bring certain kind of elements of their sound, at least vocally into the work. Mm-hmm. But then he had a certain kind of starlit idea of himself in terms of who he was attracted to and who he wanted to be with, yeah. which is, you know, his prerogative in terms of his desires. Um, but that was complicated. And I also, I know I read Maite's biography, um, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. Mm-hmm. And what I got from that is that, you know what? 
it didn't matter. You could be a man, you could be a woman, you could be genderqueer, you could be straight, you could be gay. But if Prince loved you, you surrendered. And then it like <laughs> was all, I mean, it was like after that, there was almost nothing else you could do in your life. Like it could, it like ruined you a little bit. But hmm. also, I mean, there was a way that it just felt like the way he was with her, the, when he loved you. Right, right, right. It was so much. Um, and then he couldn't really handle it. And then he would write these songs about it, and then he would leave you for someone else, and then there was God. So it was all a big mess. You know, I actually, I love the messiness when our desires and politics don't align perfectly. And when our desires can sometimes be inconvenient, <laughs> you know. And so on one hand, especially as he aged, Prince was became very much a race man. Yes. Right, very much a race man. And yet, as you were saying, so many of the women in his world were fair-skinned and actually looked a lot like him. I mean, he and Vanity could have been siblings. Right. Right. So there's some a little bit of narcissism perhaps in play, in play as well. And then specifically in the film, um, Under the Cherry Moon, Tisa Bryant, who's going to be a guest in a few weeks, yeah. did a really amazing breakdown of the film where she was trying to track the black women in the film. And you have to look in the background mm. to see black women. You know, you have to look in the background. Um and so it's just it's just a very interesting thing. You know, I was thinking and be, being very moved about you as a young black girl watching this film and feeling immersed in this world and feeling in some ways seen, in some ways being fed. And yet, you know, black women in the actual film are so much in the background. You know what? I'm so glad that you mentioned Tisa Bryant because I saw her Neo Benchy on Under the Cherry Moon and it was so excellent. Mm. And I feel like whoever is listening to this should, you know, call her and hire her to do it again because <laughs> I mean she made me see that movie in a way I had never seen it before because to be honest with you before she you know recut the film to show you the black woman in the film I don't think I even realized there were any black women mm. in the film and there mm. are quite a few there are a lot more there than I noticed and it's very st- strange in terms of the racial dynamics I mean it's important to mention with this album Parade this is the last album with the revolution right right and the revolution was this multiracial band that really was about this kind of candy colored vision out of you know like Minneapolis's uptown again that's like that midwestern minnesotan multiracial deal yeah and there's something around it's interesting like Kristen Scott Thomas as the lead as the female <laughs> lead in that movie that's so odd and it might have been her first it was her very first her film first role. film yeah. role yeah. there's something about the way Gabrielle little Gabrielle looked at who that was see this was a different racial moment maybe this is something around disidentification I didn't not see myself in that movie Maybe at that time, because there were so few representations of black women on the screen, I was very used to mm-hmm. swapping out or being able to project or understand that someone that didn't look like me could be my avatar. Now, strangely, then the more there were representations, then the less easy it was to be able to look at things that didn't look like me and be able to make it work. You say, I wonder you. I wonder you. Well, I want to detour us, I should say, I want to nudge us back to Parade. And we were just talking about the fact that this is the last album that Prince recorded with them before, I think, a pretty public falling out. Uh, and it led to Prince recording the next couple of albums solo before he uh, brought together the new power generation a few years down the line. I'm wondering to what extent was, what was losing the revolution like? What did it mean for Prince's sound and discography? And is it a great what if to imagine what happened if they had stayed together for the next few albums? Well, I mean, I love the revolution. I do. But I have to say, I mean, before the revolution, I mean, the revolution really just started with what? Like, was it 1999? I mean, he had albums that were kind of amazing, including the Prince album that wasn't with the revolution. Right, right. I mean, I know part of it is that Prince's ego got so stratospheric that he couldn't <laughs> handle the idea that he would maybe depend on these people for his sound. Right. And then also, I think just as an artist wanting to explore new things, 
I'm sad that they didn't really that that he didn't really come back with them in an extended way. I mean, there were moments where he recorded here or there. Yeah. But I have to say, Sign of the Times is so exceptional. Yes. It is such an excellent album, and I don't know if he could have done that with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Parade is also an album that seems to me to be kind of um, both kind of killing and mourning an earlier Prince. Mm. I mean, one thing that we've sort of skirted around, but I think if there are people who are listening to this that are like, let me go back and listen to this album, either for the first time or again, there's a lot of death Mm -hmm. in this album. Mm. And um, there was a song called Old Friends for Sale that that emerged on a later, in fact, maybe it was like the title of a later kind of weird album that Prince put out for, you know, recording. I don't know, contractual reasons, but he wrote it around this time and it couldn't, it wouldn't fit into the world of this movie, but it was this idea of like fame has done something to his relationships. Maybe the morning air will make me feel better. I hope better than I feel right now. Last night a stranger took my picture. He asked if I'd buy it. I said, I guess I don't know how. Oh, oh, It's almost like this is starting, this is the beginning of Prince, the movie, the, the mega rock star, starting to feel differently about himself and his relationships and all that world building that happened in the earlier albums, Dirty Mind, Controversy, 1999. It's like, that was like he was like a critic's favorite. And he was that was like to me, those are deep Detroit records. Like not mm-hmm. everybody was super into Prince, but but in Detroit, those records were really big. And mm. then he became this global superstar. And then what does that do? So all of a sudden there's like sometimes I feel so sad, or sometimes, you know, Tracy died, you know, soon after a long fought civil war. I mean, what's going on there in terms of his sense of himself as a maker, as a creator, and what's possible? And maybe that that had to die in order for some other kind of work to exist. You know, and I think that might be why, for me, Sometimes It Snows in April is one of his most moving and affecting ballads. I think it's one of his most amazing performances because he so inhabits that sadness. And even though, you know, he is a fantastic actor, you know, you know, to be a, a good singer, to be a great singer, you have to be a great actor or actress, right? Mm-hmm. And he really is. And I don't know if people, when they talk about how extraordinary he is as a musician and a songwriter, you know, his performances, you know, mm-hmm. as an actor, you know, performing these songs, inhabiting these characters. And, you know, I'm, I was older than you when I heard um, Sometimes It Snows in April, and it kind of shook me a little bit because it's, the sadness just sort of wafts through the speakers. Mm-hmm. I used to cry for Tracy cause it was my only friend those kind of cars don't pass you every day. I used to cry for Tracy cause I want to see him again. But sometimes, sometimes, like. And I think Michelle and Diggiocello's cover mm. that she recently did just like really nailed that that element that quality of it sometimes i feel so sad sometimes i wish the life was never ending all good things they say never last i just want to add on that you know it's I think it's notable that it's one of the songs that Prince would often close his performances with and why choosing that given the immensity of his catalog, why choose that? And it's also of the various songs on this album. I could be wrong about this because I didn't go this deep into the discography to figure this out. I want to say it's also his most covered song off of this particular album. I mean, the covers of Kiss are perhaps a little bit better known thanks to Tom Jones and Art of Noise. But if you look at the number of people who have covered Sometimes it, it snows in April. It's a really long list. And mm-hmm. I think there's something about, I'm just thinking, you were saying before, Ernest, about about performance and that to be a good singer, you have to be a good actor. And the ways in which actors 
have their favorite moments from other actors. They like quoting that performance. Right. And right, so there's right. something to, when you choose a song to cover, why are you choosing that particular song? And I think perhaps it speaks to the, that dynamic you're pointing out. Mm. Mm. Always cry for love, never cry for pain. He's to say so strong, oh, afraid to die on a if I can just make a quick plug too, is we had Michelle on the show to talk about Purple Rain, and this was about, at this point, maybe about a year ago. But she also touches on, she touches on a lot of the things that have come up in this conversation, in particular, the question of the role of women within the purple world, as you put it, Ernest. And I would just direct our listeners, if you, if you like today's conversation, you absolutely should check out listening to Michelle talk about Prince and talking about Purple Rain. So. Yeah, it is a fantastic, as, as a huge fan of both Michelle and Prince, that's one of my favorite mm. Heat Rocks um, episodes. It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> so bringing this back again to Parade. What is your fire track off of this album? What's the favorite cut for you? Okay. I know this is a little astral, but I have to admit, I love Life Can Be So Nice. Is that a harpsichord in there? <laughs> no, there's all these wild, <laughs> wild sounds in it, and it's noisy, and it's clangy, and there's this incredible propulsive drum in it, and yeah. it's just so surprising and weird. And I think I love this song, too, because there's a dance practice called Don't You Feel It Too, where you put the same song on repeat, hmm. and you put in your headphones, and then you just dance, dance, dance in a public space. And you work through whatever embarrassment or shyness and you just reveal yourself. And I listen to that song on repeat wow. for something like 10 or 15 minutes. And I just, it just, oh, it like cracked me open. It was such a wonderful thing to dance to. And there were so many different layers that you could dance to. So life can be so nice. How about you? Uh, for me, it's another lover holding your head because it's so funky and it's so sexy. And I really love the way the backing vocals are are handled in that track. There's a way in which it, there's it's both a call and response thing, but it also sort of collapses and it's and it's him with them, and it's not just a call and response. And it's just it's just one of those things that, that hits you viscerally, you know. And because I was already living in Los Angeles by the time Parade came out, for me. You know, what you were saying about Dirty Mind and Controversy in 1999 being such Detroit mm. albums, mm. for me, something about Another Lover Hole in Your Head just so, sort of put me back in that Detroit headspace mm. of Prince. I'm going to be the basic person here and say that my fire track is Kiss because it was certainly my introduction to Parade. Um, it doesn't also hurt that I just wrote an essay for an upcoming anthology that, that Daphne Brooks is editing about Prince and David Bowie, and I wrote about Kiss. And one of the things I said about it, and this is something that we were talking about before we started recording, is I always think of this song as a DJ cheat code because if the party is flagging and you don't want to play Michael, there's no way you can go wrong with playing Kiss, and in particular, just the way that the song opens. It is the easiest track to drop in if you can just count four, because that's all you gotta do. The audience knows it's coming within just those few heartbeats, and they're 100% in. Just 
And it's just the choices he makes, deciding to sing the song in falsetto, deciding after the original track was recorded to take the bass out, which for a dance song, like why would you ever do it? Except all of it works so perfectly. And I think there's a way in which, given the mythology of Prince, we want to think that everything that he ever put out was meticulously composed and considered. But I also want to say that I think that we have to give a certain amount of credit to just not so much dumb luck, but that choices that may not seem intuitive suddenly become sublime in the aftermath. And I think that, again, to take out the bass, to decide to, to how to approach the song, these were not things that were going to guaranteed to hit, but they work in a way that is magical because Kiss to me is just one of the great, great Prince pop songs, at least along those lines. I always think of it alongside when doves cry. You know, another one that you know should not work if you if you look at what it's doing and what right. it is not doing yeah. on paper, and yet it's a classic. And you know what we we're saying before about Prince pushing the boundaries of what pop is. So I always think of, of, of Kiss and When Doves Cry um, as being like twins or, or siblings in a way, in the, in the way that they're so incredibly out of the box and unconventional and just work. You know, as, as a writer, I have to say, one of the things that makes me just laugh and, and happy is in Kiss, the lyric, act your age, mama, not your shoe size. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great school. Yes, yes, you know? yes, and yes, here's, yes, a, yes. here's a man who has written some sublime lyrics who can just, whose pen is without peer. And for him to drop that, you know, in there is just, I, I, I love it, you know. Do either of you have a favorite moment on this album? And for me, originally I thought it was going to be the opening to kiss, which I do think is a, a perfect moment. But listening to the album as a whole, rather than as a series of, of different singles, I think the point that always surprises me and catches me off guard, but for this reason is also one of my favorite moments, is that transition between the end of I Wonder You and how it just seamlessly goes into the beginning of Under the Cherry Moon. Because you don't expect, given the sound of the two songs being so different, and yet somehow it works really, really perfectly. element of surprise the contrast it goes back to where i was saying earlier about the sequencing of it i just think that is such a sublime moment on this song and i'm wondering if either of you have favorite moments off of parade i think for me something very similar is um kiss going into another lover hole in your head it's 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 a it's a juxtaposition that works and that i don't know if too many people would have thought of besides prince yeah you don't Well, it's interesting because I, too, love a transition. And I think, for me, one of the most interesting and exciting transitions in this record is from the end of Christopher Tracy's parade Mm. and the beginning of New Position. Because when those drums start to hit in and you realize, okay, there was that Sgt. Peppery looking, whatever this is, and then now all of a sudden we're back in Prince. (laughs) (laughs) 
just two quick thoughts. Number one, just the way that new position opens in general is amazing. It's so The layers, good. the sparseness, but yet there's all this density of sound because of the different instrumentation, which contrasts is great. The other thing that I thought about too is maybe it's not a coincidence that a room full of people who at least partly make their living writing are into transitions, right? Because exactly. This is what we always <laughs> They're so hard, yeah. <laughs> game recognize game, right? We probably could have gotten to this a little bit earlier, but and this might be a controversial question to ask. Where does Parade rank within the Prince discography? Oh, don't make me. Oh, sorry. Don't make me do it. <laughs> oh, that's like, I don't know, ranking my friends, ranking the children I don't have. Um, well, is this your favorite Prince album? Not necessarily, but I mean, I like, I mean, I, I love different Prince albums for different reasons. I mean, I love Love Sexy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and Love Sexy would not be anyone's number one Prince album, but right, just right. that I remember him being naked on that leaf and going, going and listening to it. And it was on a, you know, anyway, I think that for me, first of all, there's like the Prince of pre, pre-Purple Rain, and then there's this Prince of the 80s. And then there's kind of Prince of the 90s where I love those records, but they get cheesy. Diamonds and Pearls, The Gold Experience, The Love Symbol album. So Parade is definitely better than all of that. Then especially when we start getting into Lotus Flower and Minneapolis. You remember these oh, yeah. albums? I mean, oh, all yeah. these. This is stuff like you have to be a deep Prince head even to maybe even have heard. Yeah. This is better than that. Um, I do think as an album, it holds up for me more than Around the World in a Day. Um, I think that for me, it's more interesting than for you, his first record. And I think it is on the same quality level for me as Prince Dirty Mind Controversy 1999. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's there, but it's prettier. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. that's Prince is playing with prettiness and he's bringing in the classical. So I'm interested in how, I mean, Matt Thorne talks about this record as being a marriage, one of the best marriages ever of pop and classical sensibilities through the orchestration. Mm-hmm. And that is something I don't think he really tried so much before. I mean, there's those beautiful strings on Purple Rain at the end of that song. But this is a record where he does that. So I have a soft spot for it. I love it a lot. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. But all good things they say Never last. I often dream of heaven, and I know that Tracy's there. I know that he has found. If you had to describe this album in three words, what three words would you choose? Okay, so I did do a little little homework to try to come prepared for this because it was so hard. I thought I better think about this. And um, so my words are romantic, mm-hmm. cinematic, and classic. Very fitting. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes it snows in April. Sometimes I feel so bad, so bad. Sometimes I wish that life was never ending. But if folks really like Parade, what other albums or what would be the next thing that you, people would recommend they check out? And Ernest, do you want to lead us off here? Sure. I was thinking of something that works in very similar ways and, and at the time of, of its release was as puzzling to fans. Um, and I was thinking of The Secret Life of Plants mm. by Stevie Wonder, yeah. right? Because there's the, the pop hit Send One Your Love, mm-hmm. but then there's all this other work that for a lot of fans, especially, you know, coming in 1979 after we, you know, Stevie, we, we thought we knew what to expect from Stevie, even, even when it's expect the unexpected. But we, people didn't, expect that much unexpected <laughs> you know and and i think it's an album that in recent years um has been rediscovered by a lot of people i know that for instance solange um has shouted it out as one yeah. of her favorites right so i think um you know an album that will probably push you out of your comfort zone um give you a couple of of anchors to hold on to you know strategically here and there um but also just really 
um, broaden your perspective on the artist and and what to expect from I thought of Sparkle, uh, written and produced by the great Curtis Mayfield, 1976. And the reason why this came to mind was it was a few things. One is that it's it's a a departure, I think, for people who, if you have in your mind what the Curtis Mayfield sound is, Sparkle, I wouldn't say is a night and day deviation from it, but it's different enough that I think it might catch people off guard in the same way that I think a lot of folks were not necessarily prepared for how Parade was going to sound based on the Prince albums that came before it. And it's also another case where the soundtrack and the movie don't entirely sync up in the way that you would typically expect. And partly it's because Aretha Franklin singing the soundtrack, but it's Irene Cara and other uh, of the actors in Sparkle who are singing the diegetic uh, songs in the film. And so I thought that was another interesting parallel given the ways in which Parade and Under the Cherry Moon, there is a bit of a divergence between the album as a, as, as a, as a musical uh, effort and then how the music works in the film itself. You know what? I'm going to go in a really unusual direction here, and I'm going to say as a nod to the French pop influences on this album, I would just suggest that people check out Camille, C-A-M-I-L-L-E's um, album, Le Sac des Filles. It's like the girl's handbag or whatever, and just it has these kind of beautiful, weird um, French poppy songs. This artist has been called sort of the French Bjork. And so I think it could be right after listening to Parade, it could be a really fun um, little detour. Ooh, I love that. Un, deux, trois, c'était mieux. Un, deux, les yeux dans les yeux. That'll do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Gabrielle Seville. Um, what are you working on now? Ooh, it's funny. We've been talking about some French things. I'm trying to finish up a translation that I've been doing of a Haitian poet named Jacqueline Bourget-Rosier that I've been working on quite a bit. And I'm also still continuing to do a bunch of performance writing about diaspora and sort of black feminist performance practice. And where can people find you online, social media? How can people find you? Well, they can definitely go to my website, gabriellesevillartist.com, and you can check out my books at your local independent bookstore near you or online. And recently, actually, just this month, the workbook for Experiments and Joy just came out from an imprint of the Women's Center for Creative Work here in Los Angeles. So definitely go check that out. I cannot recommend Experiments and Joy um, highly enough. I was telling Miss Seville that I'm trying to find a way to work it into my syllabus um, <laughs> for this coming term. So highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. So fun. Yeah. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and our guest co-host, Ernest Hardy, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, and Christian Duenas, who also engineers, edits, and books for the show. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and more goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. As we ask every week, if you haven't had a chance to leave a review for us on iTunes, it is a big, big way in which new listeners can find their way to our humble little show. So if you can just take out a minute and leave us a review, please do so. Hey, guys, it's uh, producer Christian here. Just wanted to quickly jump in with a tease for next week's episode. Oliver's flying solo again, talking to Jason Concepcion about Herbie Hancock's Thrust. 
I think the thing about thrust on this arc is it's part of a general trend towards how how virtuosic can we get that I think was happening in music, um, popular music on the whole at that time. You right. know, like uh, the Beatles had created this thing of like how virtuosic can we get in a studio? And yeah. next thing you know, you have Queen, who's multi-layering uh, full operatic styles, and right. you have ELO, ELO that are taking it to the next level of that. For Thrust, you're really uh, – it's a snapshot of a time when that trend line of – how much more technical, how much more virtuosic can we be was still kind of trending up. And it was really interesting to me before all that stuff kind of got swept away. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.